I pray we will see you and be excited by your presence tonight. Both your presence on the page, but also your presence in our hearts. Your presence in this fellowship where two or three are gathered. We know that you are here. And we want to be excited and enthusiastic at your presence. And at this new stage that we're going to study tonight. As Father, you begin to do a new thing in Israel. I'm excited about reading it and studying it. I'm excited about you doing new things because I know there are still new things to come. Again, as Les prayed, oh, I, I can't wait for the next new thing that you're about to do. The place that you're preparing for us. And what absolutely blows my mind, Father, is that you are doing new things beyond that. So tonight, would you excite us with the presence and person of Jesus? And open our eyes to Scripture and to understanding and to revelation, to enlightenment, that we might walk a little more boldly, that we might take a step even closer in the battle to the gates of hell, that we might even poke out a few of the pieces of the gate tonight. And not fear for our lives or fear for our souls or fear for anything, but have complete and total joy in the peace that is Jesus. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we left off last week at the end of chapter 15 in the book of 1 Samuel. And you can open up there if you've got your Bible. If you don't, go get one. But we left off with Samuel in despair. And the throne of Saul somewhat in shambles, the people's choice, a prideful mess. But the Lord completely undeterred. It tells us at the end of chapter 15 that Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death for Samuel grieved over Saul and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. And that's all you get. Half a verse, literally, of God regretting and then God's ready to go. He is ready to move on. The plan that was in place all along is ready to come to fruition and it takes us to verse 1 of chapter 16. Because God knows what Samuel does not apparently know, that the throne is set up. The time has come for the establishment now of the eternal throne. Saul went through a temporary agency to get his job as king. Because he would only be a temporary king. And God knew this from the beginning. We didn't know it. Israel didn't know it. We had no idea. We thought, okay, a king has been chosen by the people and God acquiesced. And so now they have Saul their king. But it was temporary. And now in chapter 16, and I get so excited about this because for the first time now, we are going to have the introduction to the throne of David, which is not a temporary throne. Not even for the the full reign of David and his son Solomon and then the kings following down the line in Israel and in Judah. But an eternal throne, the Bible says in Isaiah 9-7, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. And Gabriel came to Mary and said in Luke chapter 1 verse 31, You shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. What Saul couldn't see, what Samuel couldn't see, what you and I can so easily miss is beginning right here in chapter 16, we see the establishment of an eternal throne. Well, Rick, that doesn't jive because Israel was out of the land for nearly 2,000 years. There was no one sitting on the throne then. What do you say about all this? I say we don't see as the Lord sees. We don't have eyes as big as God. We see temporary problems, and like the end of Saul's reign here, it's it's real messy, and Samuel is just bummed out, he's grieving. That's where we tend to be, whereas the Lord is saying, okay, I regret that that happened at all, but it's time to move on, because the picture is so much bigger than your immediate circumstance and mine. We get stuck in the mire of our daily life. We talk about, man, it it was a tough day today. Do you know, can you even measure a day compared to eternity? We talk about the moment that we're going to be caught up to be with Jesus being referred to as the twinkle of an eye. Or some translations say the blink of an eye, like my wife's new email address, blink of fanny. Maybe you've seen it. She has an address, blink of an, and then it's a little eye. And when you read it, it looks like blink of fanny. 
I gotta have her change that. Besides, it's not even a blink; it's a twinkle. The word "used" is so fast; it's like a, it's like a, you can't even call it a microsecond. A twinkle. How fast is a twinkle? I don't even know. It's not even measurable. One day in our life is not even measurable compared to eternity. When we talk about a tough day, or we talk about I've been having a hard week, or we talk about, boy, this last year's been a tough one, and God, and I appreciate this so much, has been in this fall season broadening my perspective a little bit. Through some struggles I'm not going to go into right now, stuff, some, some worries, concerns, and showing me, you know what, a few weeks, a few months, big deal and don't worry about me because it doesn't have to do with the church and I'm not about to fall apart and you know it's all good <laughs> but he uses these circumstances and sometimes I believe lets them roll on from day into week into month so that we will realize man it's still a blip Samuel's there he's in that blip of depression of despair he's worried and he doesn't see the way the Lord sees. I want you to see three things as we get into chapter 16. And we're going to kind of roll right over some things that we talked about at the end of last week. But look at them slightly differently. Three things to see. We're going to see a horn, a heifer, and a house. A horn, a heifer, and a house. Number one, the horn. Verse one, now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. We briefly looked at the horn last week. The obvious literal intention is that God is about to anoint a new king, so Samuel needs to fill up his horn with oil. But what's interesting to me is if you look back at chapter 10, verse 1, Samuel did not use a horn of oil on Saul. He used a flask. He used, in fact, a, a vial, a smaller instrument of sorts to hold the oil, but it wasn't a horn. And there's a very distinct difference between a horn and a flask or a horn and a vial. The horn is far more significant because throughout Scripture we see that it indicates authority and power. It indicates a ruling throne, the horn. Things which King Saul never truly had. Rule, power, or authority. Saul didn't have those. He was anointed with a flask, a temporary anointing. And as you will see tonight, that anointing is removed as the Holy Spirit will leave Saul. And he will end up one messed up dude. But David, David is going to be anointed with an entire horn of oil, drenched in his anointing. An anointing that indicates an authority that will not end with David's death or Solomon's death, but would go on eternally somewhere down the line of Judah, through the line of David, on that throne would sit the eternal one, Jesus Christ, who is the picture of the horn. Thousands of years, well, a thousand years after this happened, Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, declared in Luke chapter 1, verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. The horn indicates for us the authority of Christ's eternal throne. The horn now will be used to anoint David. It will be used again to anoint Solomon. It was not used to anoint Saul. Because now we are for the first time stepping into the eternal kingdom. We're getting a picture. We're seeing what God knew, even though Samuel missed. Verse 2 says, Samuel said, how can I go? When Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. You shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I'll show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me the one whom I designate to you. Now I don't believe, as I said last week, that this was a sneaky way to get, to get Samuel into Bethlehem. I think the Lord is simply moving Samuel forward with clear instruction and clear motivation to stop fearing and fretting over Saul. He just says, look, I know you're worried. Let's go. There's nothing to fear. You have my covering, I believe the Lord would say. And he says, what I want you to do is take a heifer. So the horn indicates the authority of Christ's eternal throne. Now we look at the heifer. For just as the horn speaks of authority, so the heifer speaks of purity. Now I blazed by this last week in the last 15 minutes when the planes were so loud I couldn't even hear myself think. 
Let me explain this again. Numbers chapter 19 tells us about a very special sacrifice that God ordained for Israel, and it was the sacrifice of the heifer, specifically the red heifer. Some of the things that Numbers 19 tells us, and you can just jot these down, go back and look at this later, I'm just going to fly through these, but number one, in Numbers 19, the red heifer was to be unblemished without defect. Numbers 19, verse 2. Peter tells us that Jesus was a lamb unblemished and spotless. So the red heifer, the lamb, both unblemished, without defect. The red heifer, secondly, had to be one that had never been yoked. Numbers 19, verses, verse 2 again. It never be yoked. In other words, it was never driven by a man. Never worked by a man. And Jesus was never worked by man. He was never driven by man. Some might say, well, didn't they drive him to the cross? No, he drove himself to the cross. He walked his own route to the cross. He chose the cross. He determined to go to it. It was not of man. Jesus was never yoked to the power or authority of man. He said in John 10:18, No one has taken my life away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. Isn't that wonderful? He was not overcome by the power of the enemy. He overcame the enemy by submitting himself even to death on a cross. He said, I have authority to lay my life down. And I have authority to take it up again as he would do three days after in his resurrection. The red heifer was to be unblemished, just like Jesus. The red heifer was to never be yoked, just like Jesus. Numbers chapter 19 verse 3 says the red heifer is the only sacrifice, the only one that was to be done outside the camp of Israel. Interesting, John chapter 19 verse 17 tells us they took Jesus and he went out therefore bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. And Golgotha was outside the city of Jerusalem, outside as it were the camp of Israel. If you go to Israel today, there are two locations for the crucifixion. Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is the wrong location, and the Garden Tomb, which is most likely the right location. What do you mean most likely? Well, we can't be 100% because we weren't there. But it's most likely. We do know, however, either way, that Golgotha was outside the city, which is why the Church of the Holy Sepulchre cannot be right because it's inside the city. And so you go out and you make your way outside of the city walls and there it is, the place of the skull. The outskirts of Jerusalem. It was through the horse gate, which later was called the Damascus gate, and Jesus went outside in the same way the red heifer was sacrificed outside the camp. Another thing to know about the red heifer. This was the only sacrifice that was not killed by the priest. Numbers 19, verse 3, which is interesting. Priests did all the other sacrifices, not the red heifer. The priest would watch it take place. The red heifer was sacrificed in the presence of a priest, but the priest didn't do it. He would stand by while another did the killing. Remember what happened with Jesus? Caiaphas was high priest. The priest did not sacrifice Jesus. He stood by and watched as the Romans did, exactly as was called upon for the red heifer in that sacrifice. Going on, the red heifer was burned, hide flesh, blood and all. It was completely consumed. Jesus was completely consumed by the wrath of God. He gave everything. He lost everything. Romans 5, 9 says, Having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. So as the red heifer was completely demolished, so was Jesus in life, even to the point of His absolute death. We're also told about the red heifer in Numbers 19 that the ashes were mixed with cedar and hyssop and scarlet to maintain this kind of ash-like mixture. Cedar and hyssop and scarlet would be, would be thrown into the fire with the red heifer and all the ashes gathered up and kept. Why? Well, they used those ashes again and again for purifying both the temple but also the priest who would become an impure going into the temple. John 19 verse 28 says, After Jesus, uh, after this, Jesus, knowing all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. And a jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop, and they brought it to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. And mixed in with his ashes of the red heifer. And stick with me. I know we just kind of jumped back to numbers out of Samuel. We'll come back to Samuel. But the idea of the sacrifice of the red heifer is so significant. 
mixed in with those ashes again were cedar and hyssop and scarlet the cedar is a picture of the wood of the cross the hyssop a picture of that numbing drug that they put in the wine and tried to give to Jesus. You see, they would mix this up in with the wine and give it to men on the cross because it would numb them just enough to let them last a little longer. It was brutal. It was actually cruel. A painkiller that would allow the pain to go on more than just several hours, but into several days. And Jesus refused it. He refused it. He wouldn't take even the slightest painkiller. So the hyssop reminds us of that. And of course the scarlet, the picture of the blood of Christ. And these three things were mixed in with the ashes of the red heifer. It's an amazing picture. And I encourage you, we don't have time tonight, but I encourage you to go back to Numbers 19 and study it through. And ask yourself this question. What is it about this sacrifice that portrays Jesus? And you'll come up with numerous things. More than we've had time to cover tonight. One last thing about the red heifer though that I want to mention. Those of you who studied through Numbers with us may recall this. The first book in the Koran says the following, and I quote, Whatever nation shall discover the ashes of the red heifer will dominate the world. And I say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, Rick. You're, you're quoting from the Koran? What, do you think the Koran is, is inspired? Yes, I do. I believe the Koran is inspired. Satanically. Not in a godly way. I I believe it's a satanically inspired book. It contains things in it that are frightening. It is written to deceive and to wreak havoc. But check this out. From the time of Moses to Christ, only 1,500 years roughly between the two, only six red heifers were sacrificed across 1,500 years. That's because when they did sacrifice the red heifer, they mixed in the cedar and the hyssop and the scarlet, and they, they had that ashes mixture. They kept the ashes. And they only would sacrifice a red heifer, number one, when they found the perfect one without blemish. They couldn't even have three white hairs. If it had three white hairs, it was no good. It had to be pure and perfect. And when they found one, and when they ran low on the ashes, they would sacrifice another one. And they always mixed in the new ashes with the old. So... Theoretically, for 1,500 years, it was the same ashes of the original red heifer somehow kind of mixed in all the way down through the years. This is how they did it. But in A.D. 70, when Jerusalem was destroyed, the ashes of the red heifer were lost. The people didn't know where they were. Now, some rabbis maintain today that they were hidden, possibly in the caves around Qumran or, or down in En Gedi, or in some areas down in the desert by the Dead Sea. But the problem arose after A.D. 70, and that is this. A man could not, without the ashes of the red heifer, a man could not be purified for temple service. Furthermore, the temple which was destroyed in AD 70, the temple itself couldn't be purified for use unless you had a perfect red heifer. And so from AD 70 forward, there's a problem. We don't have that. Which is why in Israel today, there are people who are digging for the red heifer, looking for a red heifer. There are people who raise heifers, hoping ultimately to have a pure red heifer so that they can sacrifice it and bring in the seed and the hyssop and the scarlet and mix it all up and have the ashes again so that they can create that mixture and purify a priest and purify the temple. For Israel today, the red heifer means Messiah's coming. And they truly believe that. It's interesting. But why would the Koran mention this? Whatever nation shall discover the ashes of the red heifer will dominate the world. I'll tell you why. Because in the early writings of the Koran, Muhammad was still trying to woo the Jews. It's interesting. The Koran, the way it's written, says the more recent the writings, the writings that come later supersede the writings that come earlier. That's how they get around the whole, you know, the words don't match up. That if, it, if it comes later, it supersedes that which came earlier. Well, what came earlier, you read in the early parts of the Quran, it actually indicates Muhammad is welcoming to the people of the book, which are Jews and Christians, trying to extend an invitation to the Jews to join him, and they wouldn't do it. It's only when you get midway and then on further into the later books of the Quran that you find statements like, kill the infidel. Take the people of the book, Christians and Jews, and wipe them out, because they wouldn't follow along with Muhammad and his schemes and his plans so you might ask the question well is a red heifer truly needed today the Jews believe so because they can't build their temple without it they can't purify a priest without it they need the red heifer but is the red heifer needed and the answer is no because ultimately the point was purification from sin and dead things and Jesus became that for us didn't he 
He is the purification from sin. He is the one who purifies from death, who saves from death. 1 John 1.7 tells us the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. But since the red heifer is considered prophetic, people are looking for it and watching for it and waiting for it. And there may yet be some indication when one shows up that God is about to kick off that next thing, the tribulation. Of course, the rapture comes before that, and I'm thrilled about that. So we see the horn. We see the red heifer. And now Samuel goes on to, number three, the house. The house. Look at verse four. So Samuel did what the Lord said and came to Bethlehem. And the the elders of the city came trembling to meet him. And they said, do you come in peace? He said, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Remember, the elders, the people see Samuel as a very powerful man. This is the guy who calls down thunder. This is the guy who prays and God answers. So they're wondering, is he going to wipe us out? Are we in trouble here? It's kind of like when you get sent to the principal's office, you know, in elementary school, and you show up there and you're looking. And I remember I had this principal named Mr. Miller. Mr. Miller was a killer. That's what we said. (laughs) Mr. Miller is a killer. He kept a, a three, what is it, a yardstick by his desk that he was famous for breaking over kids. At least that's what we all believe. Kim found out from my many trips to the principal's office that what was really done is he would take that yardstick and in his anger he'd smack it on his desk and he'd break it on his desk. He would do this to instill fear in the kids. Miller was a killer. But Samuel was not. And Samuel was not showing up to, to cause problems or to, to, to get on to the people. It says he, he also consecrated. He said, come, come have a sacrifice with me. He said, I come in peace, verse 5. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he also consecrated Jesse and his sons and he invited them to the sacrifice, the house. The house is Bethlehem. Beth means house. Lahem in Hebrew is bread. It's funny, Cheryl's trying to learn Hebrew right now, and so Corey knows this, and there, there are little Hebrew words stuck all over the place in our kitchen. You open the refrigerator, and there's a Hebrew word for milk, and there's a Hebrew word for cheese, and you open up the cupboard, and there's a Hebrew word for, for bread, Lahem. And I'm like, I know that one. That's Lahem. All my Bible learning, I got one Hebrew word down. I know no bread. But that's what it means. The house of bread... Home to King David, and as you know, birthplace to Jesus. And I just love that. Jesus says in John 6:51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And so in Bethlehem, not only do we have coincidentally, the same birthplace of David is the birthplace of Jesus. The first king and the last king of Israel born in the same town. But the town is called the house of bread. Jesus is the bread of life. And you can go deeper and deeper into that. It's amazing. The horn that we talked about represents the authority of the throne of David in Jesus. The heifer represents the purity of the throne of David in Jesus. And the house, the house represents the posterity of the throne of David in Jesus Christ. God wraps the whole thing up in such a powerful package. This is one of those intentionally elegant moves on the part of God. He just he does these beautiful things in Scripture. He takes these places or, or this name of this person or this genealogical line and he weaves for us a tapestry that is beautiful, overwhelming. And when we pause, even as we do tonight, and look at this thing, it's like standing before a grand painting and just watching how the colors flow together and the choice of the artisan. And God is absolutely amazing that the first king in the line of Judah would be born in the same place as the eternal king, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 says, As for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Eternity past. Not eternity future, but eternity past. Indicating that this one being talked about has always existed. From days of eternity Micah writes, Micah 5.3, Therefore he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has born a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. And he will, raise, he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. This one will be our peace. 
there in the hillsides of Bethlehem. It was where the sheep were tended. In fact, the flocks that were raised were used in the temple sacrifices in Jerusalem and they were raised just there outside of Bethlehem. The lambs used specifically for Passover were raised from the hills outside of Bethlehem. David, David the little king, the youth at this point, the young man, will be found out there shepherding his sheep in the fields of Bethlehem. Jesus born in Bethlehem would become the shepherd for his people. It's just amazing. So Samuel prepares the sacrifice. Jesse's boys begin lining up. And verse 6 goes on and says, When they entered, he looked at Eliab. This is the oldest son of Jesse. And he thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have not, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. Can I just get a praise God for that? <laughs> God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Well, then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, son number two. And he said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Next, Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Thus, Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. The first three sons of Jesse. We see them named here. The rest are not even named. But we have Eliab, which means God is my father. Abinadab, my father is noble. I should have named Corey Abinadab. <laughs> My father is noble. <laughs> and Shema, this is the third child. His, his name, great name. This is probably what I really should have named Corey. Shema means astonishment. It's your son's name, astonishment. And I imagine by now Samuel must be astonished because not one of these boys are God's choice. He's going, what are you doing here, Lord? We've gone through seven kids. Seven, that number in the Bible of completion. So we must be done. There can't be any other choice here. Seven sons. They pass before Samuel unchosen, but remember, God looks at the heart. And that's so important for us to recognize. Proverbs 15.11 says, Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. How much more the hearts of men. If God can look into the very chambers of death, don't you realize the proverb writer says that he's looking directly into your heart and he can see everything there. He knows what's going on. He sees your most secret thoughts. And yet, in spite of those, in light of those most secret thoughts, God chooses to love you. He chooses to love me. For anyone who has ever passed over on an elementary school playground, it never happened to you. You line up and you're choosing your size for the sports team and you're watching people get picked and you're going, please don't make me last. Please don't make me last. And invariably, someone's going to be last. Seven boys are passed over. Seven perfect choices for king. No, not that one, not that one, not that one, not that one. For anyone who ever felt ignored because of physical appearance, or anyone who's ever looked in the mirror and wondered about their self-worth in this flesh-focused world, would you remember that God sees beauty at the heart level? That God always looks heart deep. His love is never measured by appearance. And by the way, taking his lead, neither should ours be. Boy, I hope our love is not measured by appearance. I'm just looking out at y'all tonight. The <laughs> real tragedy is that you're sitting there looking at me tonight and you're thinking, love is not measured by appearance. Okay, then we're good. We're alright. 2 Corinthians 5.16 says, Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know Him this way no longer. Paul says, we knew Him that way. We recognized Him early on. Because we saw him in his flesh. Not now. No, now we don't recognize Christ in the flesh. We recognize him in the spirit. We recognize each other in the spirit. And isn't it wonderful? I think we've talked about this before. How we get into relationships with each other and we start to forget about how we look. We start to not notice those things that we maybe noticed when we first met. And when we first began talking. But as relationships deepen, suddenly you stop really seeing the picture. 
To the point where a wife can be with her husband all day and not see the booger that's in his nose. Until he gets home and he looks in the mirror and he sees it and says, Why didn't you tell me about this? She sees him in the spirit. She's not seeing him in the flesh. I'm being gross on purpose here, gang. We are not to look at each other in the flesh. We're not to see each other that way. But the only way to get to the point where we don't see each other in the flesh any longer is intimacy. It's spending time together. The more time we spend together, the less what we see is physical and the more what we see is who we truly are the Spirit. That's what God wants for us because that's how He views us. I look in the mirror some days and go, God, how could you love this? And He says, love what? I don't even see that. I see this. I see who you truly are. I don't see the blemishes. I don't see the things your body does that you wish it didn't do. The hair that was not there in the morning but in the evening, you know, is... I don't see that. What I see is your spirit. And that's how God measures things and He calls us to measure it the same way according to the spirit, not the flesh. And so Samuel, he's looking at the flesh. He sees these tall, strong, strapping young men. Not a single one of them make the grade... And Samuel said to Jesse, verse 11, Are these all the children? And he said, Well, there remains yet the youngest. Behold, he's tending the sheep. Perfect. That's where I'll get a shepherd for my people. He's tending the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes. Okay? The banquet, the feast, the sacrifice, everything is on hold. Until you go get your youngest son. Go bring him. Verse 12. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy. Which means red haired. With beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. So he he is beautiful. David is a good looking kid. And the Lord said arise anoint him. For this is he. This is interesting to me. God looks on the heart. But he doesn't despise beautiful things either. David is a good looking young man. So it's not the fact that his brothers are too good looking or too physically strong or, or too attractive for the part. David is too. But God is looking right past even the beautiful people, even the beautiful young man, and still seeing the heart. We should remember that God does not despise beautiful things. He created them. He created the beauty that's around us here in the Northwest. He doesn't despise beautiful things. He masters in beauty. He majors in that field. And He Himself is beautiful. Psalm 27 verse 4 says, One thing I have asked from the Lord, and this one thing I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord. Don't you want to see Him? I can't. None of us can even imagine how beautiful Jesus is. When we do see Him, we will fall to our knees and worship, partially just being overwhelmed at His awesome authority and power, but partially, I believe, because we will see Him and He will be so beautiful to us. That perfect Lamb that became unrecognizable, beaten so badly and so brutally, and yet when we see Him... He's going to be beautiful. Verse 13, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. The horn of oil now poured out on David. Now I want you to consider a couple of things here that are interesting to me. Number one, consider the while, the while of David's anointing. David is anointed while Saul is still king. Saul has not been completely dethroned when David is anointed. Saul is still acting as king over Israel, and yet David's anointed. And this always confused me. As a matter of fact, we're going to see David anointed more than once. While Saul is king, this first time is when it happens. He's now anointed, he's God's man. Meanwhile, Saul is still on the throne. And Saul is not going to give up the throne easily. He's going to fight for it. He's going to be a pain in David's backside for years literally to come. I think that's interesting because Jesus is the anointed one, but Satan currently sits on the throne of this earth. 
Jesus is anointed as the ruler, the authority, the power. And yet, as of right now, well, people ask the question, if there's a God, why is there so much pain and sorrow? Because Satan is sitting on the throne of the earth. Because Satan has a degree of authority and he's not wanting to give it up and he is using it and I believe will use it more and more and more as that final day draws nearer. He's going to get more anxious. He's going to get more dangerous. We have nothing to fear because we walk in Jesus. But he is going to get more dangerous and he is going to cause more sin and bring about more sorrow. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 calls him the God of this world. Well, I thought that was Jesus, not right now. But Jesus is the anointed one. Anointed one, you know, means Christ, Christos. Mashiach in the Hebrew is anointed one. Our word Messiah. It all means anointed, and Jesus is the anointed one. However, Satan is still at large. In the same way that David was the anointed one, but Saul was still clinging to the throne. By the way, I also think it's interesting that David is the eighth son of eight sons. He's not the seventh son. Now, if I was writing for Samuel, I might have tweaked it a bit. Because seven is such a cool number in the Bible. And eight just throws my, the whole thing off, you know. Until you understand that while the number seven is the biblical number of completion, the number eight is the biblical number of new beginnings. The number eight... It's a very cool number in Scripture. For the first day of the new week for Jews is literally the eighth day. The seventh day is Sabbath. So what is called in the New Testament the first day of the week when the church met together is literally the eighth day of the week. If you're counting on from the beginning of the previous week on into the next, it's the eighth day. The first and the eighth are the same. The eighth is the day of new beginnings. Jewish infant males were circumcised on the eighth day. That was the day the flesh was to be dealt with. And the Jewish males were to be entered into covenant with God. A new beginning. A covenant from that point forward. And some believe, and I'm with them, that the millennial kingdom will line up with the 7,000 year of earth's existence. Being that time of completion where God will complete all of his promises to Israel. People ask, why a thousand year reign on the earth? Why a literal thousand year reign? As Revelation chapter 20 talks about six times, that he will reign on the earth in person from Jerusalem for a thousand years. Why? To fulfill and complete every promise he ever made to Israel. One of those coming up where where God will tell David, I'm going to build you a house and your house will endure forever. He's going to fulfill all those promises. He will do that. He will complete the promises in that 7,000 year. Well, what does that have to do with the 8th? Well, if the 7th is the millennial kingdom, bringing completion to all God's promises, and the number 8 in the Bible means new beginnings, then what happens after the millennial kingdom would have to be something brand new, right? And Isaiah says, in Isaiah 65, 17, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing, and her people for gladness. And this just blew my mind the first time I studied through Revelation. To see this and to recognize this. You see, as you study the book of Revelation, it tends to kind of crescendo. Those of you who have studied through, you know it begins and you see Jesus, wow, it's awesome. The things that are, and, and then you see the things that, 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 or the things that were, the things that are, you see in the seven churches and it begins moving through history. And that, kind of like a juggernaut, it, it begins rolling. And then it starts picking up steam in chapter 6. You go through the tribulation, it's just intense. All the way through chapter 19 when suddenly Jesus comes. And you're going, wow, this is great. The church was raptured back in chapter 4 and then the tribulation hit and all this stuff going on. And then Jesus comes, but it doesn't stop there. See, I'm, I'm really looking forward to the rapture of the church, to the place that's prepared for us. I can't wait for it. But guess what? That's not the end. Because after that comes ruling and reigning with Jesus for a thousand years in the millennial kingdom. Woohoo! But guess what? That's not the end. <laughs> Because after that, when you think, okay, it's all complete, it's all said and done, it's wonderful, let's just put on our caps and take a nap. God says, no, no. I got one more thing 
what I'm going to do and it's going to blow you away Revelation 21 verse 1 then I saw a new heaven and a new earth the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there was no longer any sea sorry Danny I guess surfing's out and I saw the holy city new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God made ready as a bride adorned for her husband and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying behold the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them he will wipe away every tear from their eyes there will no longer be any death there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain the first things have passed away gone history new things are coming David is the eighth son of eight sons. He signifies a new beginning. And God is really into new things. And I love that. But not just the while of David's anointing. The second thing to note here is the when of David's anointing. The when of David's anointing. He was anointed while Saul was king, but he was also anointed when? Three times. We see here in chapter 16, he's anointed in the midst of his brothers there in Bethlehem. We're going to see in chapter 2 of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 2 verse 4, that he will be anointed in the midst of his tribe, Judah. The tribe of Judah will now gather around David, 2 Samuel chapter 2 verse 4, there in Hebron, and they will anoint him. So now he becomes king over Judah. More time will pass. And then ultimately David in 2 Samuel chapter 5 verse 3 is anointed by the elders of all Israel. All of Israel now will come down to Hebron and say, we want you to be king over all of this. And they will anoint him then. Three times, the win of David's anointing. I point this out for this reason. At first David is anointed and just a few brothers see it. Well then he's anointed years later at a second time and his whole tribe sees it. Then finally, several more years pass by and all Israel sees him as the anointed king. And sometimes that's how anointing works. Now listen carefully to this. There's anointing with God, specifically referencing his Holy Spirit and the anointing of the Spirit on your life. There's anointing. There is also timing. And sometimes the anointing comes before the time of the anointing being used. God will anoint people oftentimes long before they step into that which they've been anointed, that for which they've been anointed. You you catch that? He'll anoint here and the anointing gets to work over here. And sometimes it can be years and years in between the two. It was for David. He's a ruddy youth out tending sheep and he gets anointed but he will not sit on the throne over Judah or eventually over Israel for many, many years and you may have an anointing from the Lord he may have poured out his spirit on you for a specific purpose and some close to you may actually see it God, you're anointed you're anointed for a ministry and you're thinking, yeah, I am why doesn't anybody else see it? Why haven't the elders of the church called me to start this new ministry for which I have been so obviously anointed? Nobody sees it, but my family sees it. But some of my close friends, they see it. They're, they're there. They see this anointing. I think in David's picture here, I would just say, wait for it. Watch for it. Pray for God to reveal it to you in His timing because there's anointing and there's timing. Be patient. I was 16 years old when I was anointed for ministry. I know it now better than I knew it then. I can look back and tag the moment I knew when God was calling me to ministry. And I was 16. And what's shocking is I didn't start into full-time ministry that day. I went on to college. I figured I had to learn a few things. And once I learned those things, then, then, the anointing would come to fruition. And it didn't. So I went to grad school because I thought you needed to have the bigger degree to be taken more seriously by people. I got done with grad school, and you know what? Have I told you this? The first church I went to work for, I'm so happy, I'm so proud of myself. I am brandishing this, this master's in clinical psychology. Don't freak out, I've forgotten everything I learned. But I had it back then. Master's in clinical psychology. And I put that on my resume, and I sent that out there, and I show up at my first church, and I'm so proud to be a master of something. You know? And I found out at that church that their former pastor 
who by the way had a cleft lip just like me left that church in disgrace over having an affair and he had a master's of counseling and they had no use for anyone with a master's in counseling talk about having the rug ripped out from under you so suddenly I've got this degree and I couldn't even hang it on the wall you know I start using cover up just to try and I'm not that guy you know Sometimes the anointing happens here and God begins to express it in your life here. If you have an anointing and you're aware of it but it doesn't seem like anybody else is, why don't you, instead of worrying about it, pray about it. Lord, what is this Lord? When is the time? And just keep my heart fresh and my eyes open for when this time comes to be. There's an unfolding that takes place and it cannot be rushed. And I, I've had people come to me from time to time and they'll say, Rick, I've been anointed to this ministry or that ministry. I'm called to do this. And again, the, the anointing may very well be there. But the testing may not. And the proving may not. And it's not something I can do. It's not something that I'm called to do. It's something the Lord will do in your life. He will test and prove you through seasons to bring you to the place. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10. Paul's talking to Timothy about, about servants in the church, and he says, Let the men first be tested, then let them serve as servants if they're beyond reproach. 1 Timothy chapter 5, 22, a, a verse that I have come to understand personally. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Paul says to Timothy, Be careful, go slowly in asking people into leadership. Don't do it too quick. Don't do it just because it looks good on the surface. Don't pick one of one of Jesse's other sons. Wait. Don't be hasty. And even Jesus walks out this pattern for us, by the way. He is born with an anointing. And very few people recognized it. His mother treasured these things in her heart. He was baptized by the Spirit. And a few more people saw it. A handful of others standing around heard the voice, saw him, and, and wow, there's something special to this man. And yet still, still the leaders of Israel, they didn't see it, they didn't understand it. It wouldn't be until much later that at his resurrection, upwards of 500 people saw him resurrected. 1 Corinthians 15, look it up. Paul says at one time, 500 of us saw Jesus walking in the flesh after the resurrection. And you can ask any of them, Paul said when he wrote the letter. But still, it was only about 500 people. And the larger world had not yet truly heard of Jesus Christ. More and more of the world hears of this anointed one, Mashiach, Christos. But there is a day coming, Zechariah 12 and 13 tell us, when all Israel, in the same way that finally all Israel comes to Hebron and they anoint David, there is a day coming when all Israel will look up and they will mourn for one as they mourn for a child. They will look on him who they have pierced and they will believe. And as Paul says in that moment, all Israel will be saved because they recognize the anointed one. And that will be the moment, the great moment, when his anointing is truly seen by all. So wait for it. Be patient. The anointing comes for David, but the rule and reign, not just yet. Now you may wonder here, okay, well, what happens to Saul then? If David's anointed and Saul's still king, what goes on there? Verse 14. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. To me, that's one of the most tragic verses in all the Bible. But it goes on. Watch this. And an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. This is a verse that often makes people look up. Excuse me? What does that mean, an evil spirit from the Lord? Let me put it simply for you. It means an evil spirit from the Lord. Okay? Just meant to be real clear there. Kyle and Delich in their commentary write that the evil spirit from Jehovah, which came into Saul in the place of the spirit of Jehovah, was not merely an inward feeling of depression that the rejection announced to him which grew into melancholy and occasionally broke out in passing fits of insanity. No, it was a higher evil power which took possession of him. J. Vernon McGee, by the way, thinks it was Satan himself who possessed Saul. And not only deprived him of his peace of mind, but stirred up the feelings, ideas, imagination, and thoughts of his soul to such an extent that at times it drove him even into madness. 
trouble working that one out? That an evil spirit came from the Lord? Turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 22. 1 Kings. 1 Kings 22. verse 19 a prophet is speaking here a prophet named Micaiah and he says therefore hear the word of the Lord I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left and the Lord said who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead and one said this while another said that then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said I will entice him and the Lord said to him, How? And he said, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all the prophets. And then he, God, said, You are to entice him and also prevail. Go and do so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets, and the Lord has proclaimed disaster against you. What does this mean? He sends an evil, an evil spirit comes from the Lord and enters into Saul. In that vacuum created by the absence of the Holy Spirit, now an evil spirit comes from the Lord. And over here we're told that, that Ahab is going to be messed up because the Lord sends a deceiving spirit. What, what could this possibly mean? I'll tell you what it means. It means God is in control. It means God is boss. It means that he is absolutely sovereign and that even the most evil of spirits cannot function without his permission to function. Now this is tough stuff. This is where we get out of, you know, elementary Bible 1A. And we get to 4B. And we start to recognize that it's not as simple as we thought it was. It's not a spiritual free-for-all. Evil spirits have to have permission to do what they do. You might say, well, I always thought God good, devil bad. See, that's Bible 1A. God is good, and Satan is evil, and so choose good. That's Star Wars theology. God is good, Satan is evil, and there's this balance of the light side and the dark side, and they, you know, counterbalance each other. And that's not true. Satan is not as evil as God is good. Satan is just, by definition, the further and further away from God you get, the more evil you get. But he does not have the evil power of God on the dark side. God is sovereign. And don't get me wrong. God is good. As a matter of fact, maybe a better theology rather than God good, devil bad, the truth is God great, devil not. We'll keep it simple. God is absolute goodness. He is perfection. He is light. And in Him, John says, is no darkness at all. He is perfectly good. But listen, absolute goodness is not namby-pamby, weak-kneed, and wimpy. Absolute goodness will do whatever it takes to achieve absolute good. Even if it means using Satan to accomplish that means. What do you mean? Satan himself provides in the scheme of things an important service. And that is the existence of Satan, the tree in the garden, the serpent allowed to be in the garden provided man with a choice. Without Satan, without evil in the world, there would be no choice. And we would be automatons, robots, who just said, yes, Lord, we love you, praise God, and that would be it. And so God allows this, uses even those who have rebelled against Him and rejected Him, who consider themselves to be and are evil, He uses them for divine, wonderful purposes. Romans 8.28, you know the verse, we know God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Satan provides the alternative. And God allows that for a season. And God will use the evil things. The evil things will think they're attacking. The evil things will think they're being hard on you and making life difficult. God, on the other hand, is increasing your faith. God, on the other hand, is showing you how to trust Him and proving to you that even in the hard times, He shows up. 
And we rail against those things. God, why are you allowing this to happen? Satan is just having a field day with me. God is in control. He is 100% good and he is 100% sovereign. And so in Saul's life, he sends a tormenting spirit. Why would he do that? He's giving Saul a choice. He's doing the same thing for Saul. Saul had the Holy Spirit upon him and was rejecting it, rejecting it, rejecting it, rejecting it. And finally God said, okay, I'll show you what it's like. And he pulls out his spirit. And he allows this deceiving spirit, this this tormenting spirit to enter in. And Saul's going to know the difference. He's going to sense it and feel it and experience it. But listen, God is not without grace. Such is the grace of God that though He allows pain in this world, though He allows suffering and heartache, it pains Him to do so. Some of you have heard me say this. Isaiah 65:17 is a stunning verse. We just read it a few minutes ago. The former things will not be remembered or come to mind. There is a day coming when you will no longer remember your pain. Any of it. There is a day coming when it will be so far removed from us that you won't even be able to call to mind a single bad thing that has ever happened in your life. But I'll tell you something. Though we won't remember it, God will. That's the depth of His grace. God will remember every lost soul. He will remember every hurt you ever had. He will remember every pain, but in His graciousness, He will allow us to forget. Because this is the way God is. He is so good. Such is His grace, that even though we forget our pain, He will remember. Such also is the grace of God, that even for Saul, He provides a remedy for the torment. Watch this. It's amazing. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 15, Saul's servants then said to him, Behold now, an evil spirit from God is terrorizing you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you. Let them seek a man who is a skillful player on the harp. And it shall come about when the evil spirit from God is on you that he shall play the harp with his hand and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me now the man who can play well and bring him to me. So one of the young men said, Behold, (laughs) ironic, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who is a skillful musician. Guess who this is? A mighty man of valor, a warrior, one prudent in speech, a handsome man, and the Lord is with him. And I think, man, if I just put verse 18 on my resume instead of Masters in Psychology, that's a great resume. Listen to that again. A skillful musician, a mighty man of valor, a warrior, prudent, and that is wise in his speech. A handsome man, and the Lord is with him. This doesn't describe me. It describes David. So Saul sent messengers to to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the flock. Now, by the way, you'll see this later, but Saul still doesn't know who David is. He's heard about him and he sends the messages, but he still doesn't even really clue into his name until later on. When he asked David who he is after the Goliath incident, which we're going to talk about Sunday, and it's really cool. It's not what you think. I'm not going to say anything. It's not what you think. Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David who is with the flock. Jesse took a donkey and loaded it with bread and a jug of wine. (laughs) Bread and wine. That picture keeps surfacing in scripture. Bread and wine. A picture of communion. And a young goat and sent them to Saul by David his son. And then David came to Saul and attended him, and Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. Now I gotta point something out. I think the NASB blew it in this verse. Verse 21. Because the literal translation of verse 21 is David came to Saul and attended him, and he loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. The name Saul is inserted by the translators of the New American Standard, and they should have paid attention to the King James, at least in this moment, because they missed it. David came to Saul and attended him, and he loved him greatly. Who loved who? I believe David loved Saul. Not Saul loved David. Saul is very quickly going to try and pin David to the wall with his spear. Saul is going to chase David down doggedly trying to destroy him for many years to come. David refuses to kill Saul even when he has opportunity to do so. Because he loves him. 
David comes into Saul's court and begins to play for him. And he loves Saul. And he honors him as the Lord's anointed. Though David himself is anointed, he recognizes Saul in his rule as king and he abdicates his authority for Saul's because he loves him. He loves him. Again, David is patient. He waits for the perfect timing of his anointing to kick in. He knows he's been anointed, but he doesn't force the issue. Verse 22, Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David now stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. So it came about, whenever the evil spirit from God came to Saul, David would take the harp and play it with his hand, and Saul would be refreshed and would be well, and the evil spirit would depart from him. Now listen. Think about this. What kind of music did David write? Psalms. Worship music. He wrote them on the hills of Bethlehem. Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He wrote worship hymns for the assembly. David comes into the, into the court of Saul and we see that every time David would play the evil spirit would depart and Saul would feel better. This is not because it was music. This is not like the the monkey thing. You know, music tames the savage beast. It's not what's happening here. David begins playing his music, which I believe is the Psalms. He begins playing music of worship and the evil spirit that is there before Saul can't stand it and has to get out of there because that's what worship does. It drives out the evil spirit. It pushes away those evil things that would try to get into our lives and attach themselves to us. They can't stand to hear the worship of the name of Jesus. And David comes into this court and begins to play for Saul these beautiful, wonderful songs. And as he plays, the spirit runs and there is power in praise. When David worships, the demon flees couldn't stand being in the place of praise or in the presence of the Spirit of God who was so richly all over David anointed by His Spirit it's so wonderful to me that God removes His Spirit from Saul He sends a tormenting spirit to Saul but then what does He do He puts in the presence of Saul His anointed one Mashiach He puts the anointed one in Saul's presence and he begins playing worship music over and over and over. Why? God is still trying to get through to Saul. That's grace. That's grace. And gang, there are moments in our lives where that is exactly what's going on. We have have been rejecting God and rejecting God and rejecting God and I don't think, I don't believe once we've been given His Spirit that He pulls His Spirit out but I do believe that we can quench the Spirit in our lives. I believe His Spirit can get very, very quiet. And as our lives begin to get out of control and we get confused and we find ourselves even mad at times like like Saul, but we walk into worship, God continues to play that music into our souls. That's why worship is so important. I said earlier tonight, and I'm going to say this, and please, please, uh, grant me just a moment of of grace here on your part to me because I don't want I I hate the whole guilt trip thing and that's not what I'm doing here so that's my disclaimer and I also want you all to know for those of you who came late tonight I have no idea who that is because the lights are off and it's dark and I can't see a thing except right here okay but I wanted tonight to end this and to go into worship but the reality was so few people were here at the very beginning that I knew if we did that you'd miss half the teaching and then you'd pick up the worship at the tail end and I know there's work and I know there are other challenges for getting here but I want to encourage you because the day is coming when at 7 o'clock 7.01 I'm going to open the Bible and teach first and we're going to do that for 45 minutes or an hour and then we're going to lead right on into worship and spend time doing that and I, I struggle with that because I don't want to be constrained to do it a certain way And I don't want you all assuming, or anybody in this fellowship assuming, ah, you know, the worship's going to go 45 minutes or so. We'll show up at the tail end, catch a song or two, and head on into Bible study, because that's what I want to hear. We need the worship. We need the worship desperately. Because that's what soothes us. That's what drives away the evil that tends to attack us. The Word's wonderful. 
And we are washed with the water and the word, but the worship. I actually had uh, one guy say to me, here at the bridge, this was a, a few years ago, I don't believe he's around right now or hasn't been in a while, and he actually made the comment, I just don't like the worship. Well, I love the teaching, but I just don't, I don't like the worship. And I'm like, dude, <laughs> who is it that we're worshiping in the first place? It's not about us, it's, it's him. So, all that to say, I invite you to be here at 7. I invite you to try and be here on time because you never know. I mean, right now you're going, okay, well, in four years, Rick has always done worship first and teaching second. Well, I'm about to change that. (laughs) Rick's going to do a new thing. (laughs) Let's pray together. Father, your word is so good. And we are so blessed to be able to enter in and to learn of Jesus, to see our... Messiah literally anointing the pages of Scripture. I'm so excited, Lord, to be at the front end of this of this kingdom of David. And to see what you're going to unfold before us and reveal to us in these studies. But Lord, I pray for all of us gathered here tonight, and I pray for everyone in the bridge, that we would not bypass worship in favor of the word. Because both are equally significant. We need to worship you, Father. And we need to hear your word. And we need to be in fellowship, Lord. Because all these things develop us and and grow us and give us eyes to see the way you see. And, And that, Lord, is truly what we're praying tonight. We want to see with your eyes. You looked down at Jesse's family and you knew exactly who you wanted. And you did not look on the outward appearance, but you looked on the heart. And I pray that you will teach us to be spiritually sensitive so that we would look on the heart of other people. And we could learn to love the way you do and have compassion the way you do. And, and that we may see, Lord, even with the eyes of Jesus, who when he saw the lost people, the lost sheep of the house of Israel, he said that they were like sheep without a shepherd. He saw that. May we see that as well. Jesus, we do worship you and praise you tonight. May we walk out of here with praise on our lips and joy in our hearts. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray.